Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting edge strategies and acquiring leads and sales to acquire more customers for your business through traffic. We no longer say paid traffic here, Kasim. It's all about growing your business through traffic. We've got a guy here in the virtual green room that knows a fair bit about traffic, which we're pretty excited to have here on today's show. But before we get into that, I think there's a little nugget that neither one of us knew about each other. And that was our respective middle names. The middle name. Just go, I didn't realize you were going to spring it on me live, Ralph. We're not sharing this with the public, are we? Well, you know, they're getting to know you. Apparently, in our, one of our most yeah. recent reviews, it's like people are sitting in the back deck drinking margaritas listening to us. So, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily think that's like the optimal type of visitor. But, you know, the more than you drink, the smarter we sound, apparently. The better it yeah, gets. The better the right. show gets. So, yeah. yeah. So, a big reveal here today, Qasem Aslam, and your middle name, I now know, is Saeed. <laughs> yeah, my my parents didn't feel like it sounded ethnic enough by itself, so they, they wanted to guarantee that the, the TSA random selection, so Qasem Saeed Aslam just has a nice, oh aggressive, you know, what would you say, spice to it? So if you applied for clear, would you get it? With- oh, I'm TSA pre-checked Oh, you're now. TSA it, pre-checked. It, oh, that's great. Yeah. So there's no problems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say no problems. I'd say diluted problems. (laughs) Dude, I'm not kidding. I I got to the point, I fly so much. I know the TSA agents at Sky Harbor Hmm. by first name. You know, like, hi, Henry. Hey, (laughs) Cossum. Step aside, please. Step aside, please. (laughs) Just random. The guys that look like you. Yeah. I mean, we're... It's just good math. Yeah. It's crazy. So, you know, I did get stopped this past week in Dallas. It's because you know me. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Oh, that's the guy that knows Cossum's site. You know that Saeed guy. That's I yeah. think that's what Although they said. If, so in fairness, if you're flying out of Pakistan, you'd be randomly selected. That is true. I look dangerous over there. Because Ralph Holland Burns. Ah, uh, yes. That, here it is. That sounds suspect. To Here's us. the big yeah. reveal. That's right. I like Holland. Holland sounds like a good like if you were to break bad, it's like you're Heisenberg. Like Heisenberg. you'd be Holland. Heisenberg. That yeah. would be absolutely my name. I mean, I'm thinking about that as like my next career after this whole thing, like to get an RV and cooking meth. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Heisenberg. So uh, yeah, Holland, like it's a great idea. Now, like all the pieces have just fallen together. Like I now right. know what my next step need. in my career will be. Yeah. Boston needs more meth. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Especially on Cape Cod, which is funny because today's guest, I didn't realize was actually a Boston native. Because you'd never guess. I think all us people that have now gone into this media thing sort of lost our accents along the way. Us, us people like you. You lost your New Mexico accent, which I don't really know. I did have a New Mexico accent, but yeah, everyone now sounds like they're from the Midwest, which is pretty much how I was taught way back in voice coaching school to get rid of my Boston accent way back when. There, 
And uh, yeah. well, dude, fun fact: this is the way phonetically speaking, English should be articulated. The English accent that we know today is a byproduct of Francophilia. You hop in a time machine, go far enough back. That's why when people sing, they sing in kind of the flat English that you and I speak. Yeah. And because the Britons, I'll say, were obsessed with all things French and French culture, and then the French accent is so beautiful, it's an affectation that they adopted, which is freaking hysterical to me. There's an entire nation of people, and I'm so sorry I'm bashing our English brethren because I love them dearly and deeply. My mom's family going far, far, far back is English, but the way that the English language in England is spoken is like, it's fake, dude. What a fun anthropological study that is. Isn't it so funny when you yeah, have like, I just did our 90-day meeting and we have two Aussies there, two Australians. And when they try- Yeah, I don't make fun when, of the Aussies. I'm afraid no, of them. No, but when they try to talk in an American accent, it's so hysterical. They all sound like Jack Nicholson. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And then, you know, when they try to do like a Boston accent, just forget it. Forget it. So mm. anyway, so we're going to prompt our guest to get into his Boston accent here. And also, we're going to leave some links in the show notes that actually show him way back when, when he was like five years old, when he started his first business. I'm pretty sure he was he was around that age. He was in Europe. He, he was in Europe. <laughs> That's right. He started doing YouTube ads while he was pre-birth. Today's guest, we're pretty excited about having this guy on the show. And I was determined not to like him either by the way, because he's everywhere oh, and he's annoying. Yeah. He's, an, right. he's annoying. Yeah. He's all over the place. And I'm like, that's brilliant annoyance. We are excited to have Alaric Heck here today, CEO and founder of the one and only Ad Outreach. Alaric, welcome. Well, so the thing about Alaric is there's never been a nicer human that I dislike more. <laughs> Alaric... He was financially free before he was able to vote. He was already massively successful before he was an adult person. He's had, that I know of, three startups that have all been wildly successful in the media space, in the agency space, in the SaaS space. And then when you meet him, you'd assume a person like that would have the good grace to be a douchebag, right? Like you would assume- from Boston. Right. right. You'd just be like, look, give me just the benefit of feeling better about myself and be a jerk. And then you meet him and he's like a genuinely nice guy, which just pisses me off. So for whatever it's worth, Alric's 26 years old. He's one of the most successful people I've ever known. Tons of fun to listen to. Phenomenal speaker. The world authority in all things YouTube, branching out into other facets. And super grateful to have you here, Alric. Oh, well, thank you so much. It really means a lot. I appreciate that, Kasim. Appreciate that, Ralph. Excited to be here as well. And dive in and really help everybody who's listening really dive into the world of YouTube and YouTube ads. And I've got a lot of great things to share. So I'm excited. We're excited to have you. Normally, I'm the young guy on the podcast. Now I'm just like the middle child. <laughs> How does it feel? How does it feel? It's horrible. He's adjusting. I feel so irrelevant. Yep. It really is. Well, we didn't prep you for this, but this is what we love to spring on guests that we're not really quite sure of. And now we're like friends. But do you have some kind of amazing nugget of info that you can give the perpetual traffic listener? Maybe it's something that you know just so well, it's like you do it, then you realize nobody else actually knows this one thing. And it's just a little thing that just sort of helps things along, gets me more traffic, gets me more business. We love to give sort of a pre-nugget before we talk about the real deep stuff here about all the different things that we're going to be talking about today. So do you have a nugget for the PT listener here? I know we're springing it on you without any sort of advance notice. 
Oh yeah. Well, you know, one of the things is what nugget to choose from. And I think I'll go a little bit more advanced, but again, we're going to dive in and map out you know, some of the other strategies too. So this too, a little bit more advanced than just know. I was challenged to give a nugget people might not know. So what I would recommend, obviously YouTube ads are now diving into the audience-based targeting. That's what they've been for a while now. And it's really all about building out these audiences, right? So you have Google's pre-built audiences, you have the custom audiences as well, where you can go in and target based on things that people are searching on Google or YouTube, interest or in-market, you know, audiences, what Google knows somebody who's interested in, or you could target URLs, things like that. We'll get into that later and we'll dive a little bit deeper. I'm just giving you a little overview there. What this nugget is, is let's say you have a custom audience that's performing well, maybe it has five, six individual keywords within that audience. And that's one of your top performing keyword-based audiences. And what a lot of people don't think to do, but we have found actually can perform really well is to split out that audience that's working well. And, you know, of course you can scale that up individually. If you find a collection of keywords, usually they'll be a little bit related. Sometimes you do some that explain the business a little bit or things that people are searching on Google. But if you take that audience and you actually split it up into single keyword or single URL audiences, what you can do is get really granular and see if you can get even outsized returns just by having one particular keyword in an audience. Now that's not necessarily best practices. You guys know that, I know that. That being said, if you found an audience that already performs, that has multiple keywords in it, breaking that up and then creating another campaign with each of those individual audiences is just having one particular keyword or URL can actually sometimes outperform because you might find specific keywords that are underperforming, cut those, then you see that there's a few that are performing better there. That won't be your most scalable campaign, but it can be a campaign that could be hyper successful or profitable for you, especially if the base comes from an audience that's already performing. So that's a nugget many people might not know. Obviously, we'll dive into more of the, you know, everything else there, but that's what I would share. That's a great one. It's like skags, but for audiences. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That hyper-segmentation inside of Google, to the point that you made earlier, it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to start that way, but once you've established proof of concept, I love the idea of kind of niching down. And you've always been really good at that, Alric. I tell people, Google has a rule, don't run YouTube ads unless you're willing to pay 15 times your TCPA per day, which is nuts. And that's a rule we follow, by the way, but you don't follow that rule. You've taught people how to run YouTube ads with like what I would consider to be micro ad spends and do so successfully, which is nuts, man. Like, I don't know anybody else but you that can do that. Yeah. And that's something that really has been one of the big areas that we've been really successful in is helping, you know, not just businesses that have massive budgets, but businesses to start from a ground up. And I remember we did a different podcast or, or video, I think on your channel a while back. And I remember you said, all right, you finally convinced me. Like I came in thinking that I was going to win this argument and that, or the thing that you were going to win the argument. And you said that I'd finally kind of convinced you on this, which is most people like what you're talking about, on YouTube ads, they start very broad at that 15 times TCPA. So you're gonna have a large campaign and depending on what your TCPA is, it could be hundreds or even in the thousands, right? You know, in terms of a campaign that you run, obviously it just depends on what your goal is, right? But you're basically running those bigger campaigns and then almost, you know, hoping that that's gonna work and narrowing down. And obviously, you know, for you with bigger budgets, you have a variety of them, you can do more of them. But at a smaller budget, if you're putting all your eggs in that one basket, the problem is these people that are running these campaigns at smaller budgets, they actually care more about making every dollar go further than they do about testing quicker and rapidly with a bigger budget. So again, there's two different things. And 
it's a different strategy we would apply to bigger clients that come in. And we, we do have bigger clients too. So we run the gamut. But when we have those smaller businesses that have smaller budgets, what we want to do is we want to take what we call a tree scaling approach. So instead of starting off with that one individual bigger campaign, we want to create more micro campaigns and start them even at 50 or $100 a day at a much, much smaller budget. Now, typically we have found, it's funny because the rule that we have is so different than Google's rule. We do want to make sure that it's at least like over that one conversion value, but it's different than 15 times. And the way that we've seen success is early on, and this has carried over into this new kind of chapter with audience targeting, but early on, it was very 3D targeting based. So last time we were on a podcast together, we kind of dove into that, which is, you know, it was really hyper layering. It was layering content targeting existed in the past. So it was layering audiences plus the content targeting plus demographics to really get granular on who that ideal user is. That's no longer the case anymore because, you know, as we both know, and those listening or watching, most of you should probably know, but if you don't know, Google shifted away from content targeting and into audience-based targeting. So it's all about these audience segments. You can still do content targeting and CPV campaigns, but those aren't recommended for conversions. So for direct response, what you want is to run these, you know, VAC or video action campaigns. And those campaigns, it's all about looking to try and maximize the number of conversions. And now it's audience targeting. And so as we've gone into audience targeting, what we've seen is the same rules apply. It's just now getting more niche down in terms of what the targeting options are inside of that audience. But you can still spend at a smaller budget as long as you're more targeted on exactly who you're looking to reach. And that's one of the things that we've found. And then from there, you scale up like a tree. You don't just scale up that one individual campaign. You can create other iterations and tree branches that allow you to grow both vertically, but also kind of horizontally as well. And that is how you can really maximize a smaller budget without having to start with 15 times TCPA right off the bat. Yeah, I love the analogy of scale up like a tree. That's the brilliant visual and a good way to think about how to approach campaigns that begin with the hypersegmentation, kind of planting the seed of the tree. I want to repeat something you said for our listener. Your recommendation from a budget perspective is make sure you can achieve at least one, and correct me if I'm saying this incorrectly, Alric, but one conversion a day. So one sale, one lead, which is something you'd probably have to back into, right? Like you start to spend and then you realize like, okay, it took me three, four, five hundred dollars to achieve this. So my budget now needs to be three, four, five hundred bucks a day. Exactly. And that's where we have found kind of the limitation within Google. It's not the 15 times, you know, it can get a little wonky though, if you can't get that at least one conversion per day. And so that's where you kind of work your way backwards into that. Obviously, it could be even lower budgets if you're targeting based on leads. Obviously, if you're targeting based on sales, depending on what your actual product or service or whatever happens to be is. But what we recommend is being able to have at least one of those conversions in that campaign per day, which again is very different than 15. But that's how we found you're able to target at a much smaller scale inside of YouTube. And then you can scale that campaign up. But again, you can also create the other iterations as well from there. All right. Well, that is just one nugget of many nuggets that we're going to be talking today with Alaric about, not to mention the thing that everybody wants to know about, why YouTube ads beat Facebook ads every, every time. time. Can we say it all together? And we're going to be back with the answer to that question after this quick break. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Thank you. 
Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. We're back with Alric Heck. You know Alric, incidentally, if you're listening. You might not necessarily know the name, but I guarantee you know the face and the voice. And you've probably heard him say... YouTube ads beat Facebook ads every time. Bam, yeah. So first of all, to have a tagline, I think is the epitome of success as a marketer. I want a tagline. I'm going to go come up with one. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Um, That's high praise from us, you know sarcastic and reluctant to give any sort of praise marketers yeah on this side so of the equation. jealous like there's no my wife went to new york fashion week this is a true story my wife went to new york fashion weeks with some friends and she got to hang out with like some of the biggest names in fashion and she came back and she goes first of all they're all so kind and humble and generous and accepting and then she goes second of all and we'd just been to tnc which is traffic and conversion for our listeners and she goes the digital marketers were so much more pretentious than the fashionistas, like on, on <laughs> scales that were unfathomable. And I, and she, I heard her say this and I'm like, you know what? That sounds about right to me. Because we're all that so insecure. Feet. That's yeah. why. That's it. Yeah. Except you just Alec. assume like the devil loves Prada that the fashion people would be horrible, but they weren't. Apparently they're really nice people. Eric, I've got a question for you. This is a problem that I have not been able to solve with YouTube specifically. It feels like a long-term problem, but one that was exacerbated with the privacy first iOS 14 drop. I'm saying that is an amalgam of issues, not just iOS 14. We are having a near impossibility tracking conversions in YouTube. The example I'll give you is my own campaign. I spent about $150,000 a month in YouTube for Solutions 8. YouTube tells me my cost per lead is five dollars to $6,000. My real cost per lead, if I just play the Murr game, is two dollars to $300. And I know for a fact my tracking from a technical perspective is rock solid. My CTO is brilliant. He taught the people at Go High Level how to do first party attribution. Like I'm not worried about technical. I do know that I run extreme top of the funnel. So that would explain some of it, right? Because I'm not going after conversion-based campaigns. I'm curious though, if you've run into the same things or have you seen the same things, you know, either through your own campaigns or through your students, does YouTube drop conversions or is it just because I'm so tofu in my approach? That's a great question. That's a pretty extreme example, right? Where you know that it should be 
in that 200, 300 range would be the averages. But in terms of what you're seeing report on Google, if it's, you said it's in the you know 5,000 or something. Five to like $6,000. Me and Ralph did a case study on this. I had Google ads pulled up and I'm showing him YouTube's. But I know if I turn YouTube ads off, my lead flow plummets. It plummets. Now, I know I get some leads organically, but my quality leads are the ones coming through paid. The thing we do with paid that nobody else does is we actually run traffic to our education. I'm running traffic to a 60-minute video on media efficiency ratio. So they're not ads per se, which again, I think explains some of it, but I, don't, I feel like it doesn't explain all of it. So are you doing that as an in-feed ad or are you doing it as a... Yeah, in-stream skippable... So, okay, wait, so, okay, because obviously there's basically the in-stream, right, and VAC type ads, but then there's also the in-feed that appear, like search results, and goes directly to the video. Are you driving people off of the platform or just... No, just- we're staying inside of YouTube. The CDA almost always is our YouTube channels, another video or subscription option, those types of things. I think that's probably going to be why you're seeing that. Yeah, I've seen your ads pop up too. <laughs> you're not the only one seeing my ads. I you know, see your ads a bunch. I love, you know, lead flow, but I hate lead flow. Or whatever. I don't know, whatever. That's the hook I always see. But, or no, sorry, lead gen, lead gen, lead gen, but yeah. I hate lead gen. Me too. That's John. the one. But anyway, and I think I actually did one of them take a look at where you're sending to. I think it was the YouTube video. So that is likely what's causing the issue. And this should not be the case because, you know, again, YouTube should be a little bit smarter in this and pass through some of the conversion data, the fact that you clicked on it. But unfortunately, I think that is something that not as many people are doing that type of strategy where they're sending directly to the YouTube channel, at least at the scale that you're doing it at. But we have seen tracking issues with either doing that or doing the more, they used to be called YouTube discovery ads, but now they call it in-feed, but it sounds similar to the in-stream. They like to change all these different names. And even though I come out and talk about the love for YouTube and YouTube ads all the time, sometimes they change names in funny ways. But the other type of ad, the in-feed where you click on it, those are more CPV based. It's in the search results as a suggested video, and then you go and watch the video. Those notoriously have been really challenging to track, but we know that they convert really well. And actually, I was talking with Joel Irway about that because that's the type of traffic that we did to a podcast webinar that I did with him. And I think that he's had other people do podcast webinars. It's just harder to track that type of traffic all the way through because it's going through that intermediary step of going to the YouTube watch page. And then they might click the description or the link in the description. And I think that that is what's causing the challenges to be even more inaccurate for you is the way that you're advertising. Now, again, I don't think it should be that way, but I think that that would explain it because that type of discrepancy is not something that we typically see. What would make more sense is like a 20 to 40% you know, discrepancy in terms of- Which of, is about um, the difference you see between analytics and GTM is 20 to 30%. So matching that, carrying that across channels would make a lot. Here's my question for you then, because our listeners are director of marketing, CMO, business owners, many of them, but let's say for the CMOs, you're on the hook to show results. You know, if you're good at your job anyway, and I hate to position it that way because it sounds combative, but uh, if you know what you're doing, you know that this advertising mechanism is yielding results. Like you mentioned what used to be discovery. What did you say it's called now? In-stream? In-feed. Okay. So you know the in-feed ads produce results, but you know they're notoriously hard to track. Is your recommendation run them anyway and champion the cause, which means you have to educate the entire organization on media efficiency ratio, CAC, LTV, zooming out, loss of attribution, et cetera, or... And this is what I think most people do is even though they know it works because they can't prove it, they don't run it. And they go to the thing that they know they can prove. 
Yeah, this is always the tricky, tricky game. It's the same thing, you know, doing work and, and working with clients. It's like the thing that you know is going to produce the best results, but it might be harder to prove versus the thing that you can directly show. And that's the other thing too with retargeting, and we'll get into that later, the omnipresent retargeting strategy, but not every single campaign in the omnipresent retargeting strategy produces the last click, but some of them are really important as well because they drive the message. And so you could forget them if you don't look at the whole picture. So the answer is, is there something we can track? So can we paint the argument? Okay, let's do this because it works, but what can we track? So what I would recommend is setting up a UTM link in the description of that video because it's not perfect because they might click on another video and go from there. But I would just honestly update all the links from your YouTube channel with those UTMs, which I know is a pain, but you know, it's like one of those it's things. It's a pain, but it's so worth it. Yeah. This, this is a good pause moment. If you're running an organization, if you're in charge of an organization, if you're not using UTM tracking, we didn't need it for a while. There was a five-year period there where we could just track, the mechanisms are tracking for us. Because you've lost visibility, if you don't have a UTM structure, which by the way is not hard, coming up with your UTM nomenclature is like an hour on a whiteboard. And not even that, you know, it's probably 10 minutes on the whiteboard and then 50 minutes explaining it to everybody. But if you're not using UTM tracking, for anywhere and everywhere that your links are being positioned, all organic social channels, all guest blogging, all press releases, you are flying blind. And I'd love, Alec, if there's more that you want to say to buttress that argument, I feel like this is a, I mean, for our listeners, this alone would make such a world of difference. Yes, it is so important to know where all your leads come from and really having the right tracking in place is what lets you do that. And the UTMs, you know, again, you don't even need all this fancy software. You can track it with Google Analytics. And again, there are other softwares that can augment that. But what I really recommend is making sure that you're just tracking everything. And there's always going to be a little bit of that unknown traffic. You don't know exactly where it came from. But the more that you can track, the better visibility you have. And then that also, even when you have great tracking, if you're running the YouTube ads directly to a landing page, directly tracking conversions that way, it's similar to what we talked about before, maybe there's a 20 to 30% difference. Now you at least have another data point that you can look back to and you can see, okay, here's what the UTM show here. And then if you have the full pie, right, you can see using your UTMs, where did everybody come from? Here's how many people came from the YouTube channel. You know, here's how many people came from the YouTube ads, maybe a different type of ads. Use that to prove YouTube ads beat Facebook ads, you know, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> um, but you can actually track everywhere. And that is, again, it's like switching over to a good kind of CRM. It can be a pain to set up, but it's going to provide so much more value long term. And I think it's easy to underestimate the value of visibility and good data. And that's something that, you know, even we are constantly looking at and learning. And it's the same thing that Cosmo, you're saying this too, it's like always relearning the importance of having good data and clear data because that lets you make the right decisions. And sometimes that little bit of time it takes to implement a UTM strategy could be one of the highest yield activities that you do. 100%. What, what CRM are you using, Elric, or what CRM do you recommend using? We use HubSpot as a CRM. HubSpot, yeah. And then we also have Segmetrics in the background running okay. you know, some of the analytics and stuff, and we plug that all in. So at a higher level here, the question really is running ads, I always call them pre-roll, but in stream ads to education call to action is to send to a page to consume basically a 60 minute piece of content in essence is that the one that's at the top of the page custom what's the call to action just so we can sort of 
chide the breadcrumbs here because this is super important here. If you're a director of marketing and you're doing any of this and you're losing visibility and you're using MER, which is our default as well, I mean, you can't really go wrong with MER in a greater sense as long as you have that 30,000 foot view. But let me just make sure I piece it all together here. Add pre-roll on YouTube, educational content, send them to your YouTube page, which then has a sort of cornerstone video of like 60 minutes or so. That's what we do. We send them to a cornerstone video. Got it. And then Alaric, you're saying add in the description your next step or your next click to whatever page it is, like you know, talk to us page or about us or whatever, homepage, whatever it happens to be. Am I making that whole... With UTM intact. With UTM intact in the description because that's where it's getting lost because there's no view through coming from that initial pre-roll ad that goes to the page. Your, your tracking is getting broken there. Well, your UTMs have to be simple because YouTube doesn't allow you to veil hyperlinks. So the link, the URL is shown in its entirety, or at least that's the way it used to be. Maybe that's changed. Yeah. So it depends. They do shorten what the link will show up as, but if you put in the right UTMs, it should go through. If you just put in the right UTMs, they might shorten what's displayed, but it should click through on the original link. Once I take a conversion action on the call to action page though, why doesn't YouTube... Like I've already paid money for the ad two clicks ago. Why wouldn't that click or that view through conversion show up in my tracking? This is what just doesn't make sense to me. Help me understand. If I don't understand, probably some of the listeners probably are the same thing. It's also worth noting that what we typically recommend is sending people off to more of a lead gen style, sending people off to a landing page. They opt in, we capture that lead, they watch something else, and then you control it. So it's a lot easier for you to pass the Google data, like basically having obviously the tag manager installed on all the different pages and that tracking we see a lot better. You might've also answered the question though, what I'd be curious, Kossum, and you might've already checked this too, but do you know if you've checked, if it's showing up as a view through conversion just versus a regular kind of, you know, baseline kind of top line conversion? Uh, such a good question. So that was our first suspicion is can we, from an attributed perspective, use view through? And Google has two delineations with view through. I forget the nomenclature specifically, and neither of them were reporting. But dude, I think you nailed it. I think it's because we're not going to a landing page. We're going, and this is where my conspiracy theory kicks in. I believe very strongly Google could track this if they wanted to report on it. I think they're terrified of antitrust, anti-privacy stuff. And so they're careful about what they push through if it's non-linear. And because it's a non-linear connection, people see our channel, watch our videos, and then later come around and convert. It usually takes two to three months in some instances. But you know that 90-day session, that we know for a fact that you can track within that 90-day period. And for whatever reason, Google's made the strategic decision not to do that. But what you're saying here makes a lot of sense. It's like, hey, if you are going to use my strategy, use UTMs, see what you can track. I love that answer. And then also maybe closer to home is use a direct response strategy. Like it's okay to go for the kill, ask for the sale. And those things are tracking. It sounds like I don't do a ton of them, but it sounds like they're tracking a little bit better with maybe a 30% loss, depending on how it's structured. Exactly. And I also have an idea for you too, that I would recommend testing. So I'll give you your idea, but also just to reiterate what we're saying here, this is a very custom setup. So that the standard recommendation I'd have is running the YouTube ad, like you said, directly to your landing page, you get the opt-in, you then on the back end of that landing page, you're sending back the data back to you know Google for the conversion there. That should track again with maybe a 20 to 30% differential and just because of iOS devices, different things like that. 
Um, you know, so there's going to be a little bit of loss there. You can also supplement by either connecting Google Analytics or a third-party tracking tool, pushing back the conversions there. But essentially, that's what I would recommend is sending from the ad to a landing page, an opt-in, then going into the rest of your funnel and then optimizing for conversions that you care about. You can start with the leads and then work your way upwards. One thing we also find too is optimize for multiple conversions can be valuable too. So if you have a kind of a backend conversion that you like, you can set a conversion value. You can play around with what your strategy is. There's things you could do there and it can get more advanced. But in general, I'd recommend a traditional direct response strategy, add to opt-in to then everything else. And that will track a lot better than what you're hearing here. Now, Kostum, I actually have, uh, do you want me to give you a recommendation that might be valuable for you? Oh, yeah. I'm excited. That's why we had you on the show, Alric, just so I can pump you for free consulting. Hey, hey I, lo- I love it's, it. It's all about yeah. us here, really. <laughs> Man, so it sounds like you're actually running VAC campaigns, like video action campaigns, more of the in-stream type ads that are then running to your YouTube video. So what conversion are you optimizing that on? Are you just setting it on all conversions or what are you setting as your target for those campaigns? You know what I should do, man, is I should pull it up so I can answer that question directly. We've jimmied with it a lot. And I mean, at one point, it truly was like maximize views because we knew our targeting was really good. But it's my business partner that runs the campaigns and I have no idea what he's done since then. So if I can get an answer here while we're chatting, I'll do that. And if not, I might fire it to you offline. Let me just interrupt here. This is super important. I mean, if you're listening, you're saying, oh, well, this is a one-off case of Cosm. It actually isn't because what we are seeing more and more as costs rise, and this is what we should do in an entire episode on this, is more and more content up front, most times ungated. Alaric, which I know goes against every internet marketing, digital marketing bone in your body because you are going for the conversion at all times. We have found, however, that the more education up front, the more touches that are ungated actually leads to the end result. And in this particular case, in Costum's case, let's say you have a service business, you're listening to this, you're a director of marketing for a service-based company, or you are in digital products. What we're seeing, in, or software, three examples right there. Or even fourth, high-end e-commerce. We just had Molly Pittman on here as well. It's more touch points before the actual ask. And that's why this is an important conversation. Because the more touch points you have, especially when you're not capturing a name and an email, the more potentially it gets lost. And you as the director of marketing or the CEO are like, where do I spend my money? I know as soon as I shut off my YouTube ads, all my sales start. Or as soon as I shut off my high-end video view Facebook ads, all of a sudden, all my Amazon sales go away. This is a problem of huge magnitude because it's not all about the conversion up front. It's like one in 100 will buy on the first time. Or maybe the first time. We say 1% conversion rate to cold traffic is great if you can do that. But what do you do with the 99%? We're talking about the 99% here. So just want to frame that a little bit more out here. And we've got a guy who wants to capture the name and email. On my side, I'd rather have them consume ungated content, ungated content, ungated content. So by the time they talk with my sales guy, they are ready to buy because they already know, like, and trust us. And I know that's what's working right now for Solutions 8 as well. So Dude, that's such an important point. Do you want a name and an email or do you want somebody to trust you? Right. Because if you have a name and an email, they still don't trust you. As a matter of fact, anytime anybody gets my name and email out of me, if they haven't already built relational equity, I'm a little pissy. I'm like instantly going for that unsubscribe button. It's true. 
I mean, in all honesty, I opted in for your stuff and I haven't read a single email aside from like two or three that I just read prior to coming here. But I did go and watch like 10 of your YouTube videos. I am not alone. So you got my opt-in. You now control. You also have my phone number, which you're very persistent sales guys continue to text me. The point is, is I'm not ready to buy. I'm trying to take myself through your journey. Like, where am I at? Maybe I'm a skeptical marketer, but I'm just thinking that the more non-committal touch points I sort of have, the more, especially in some of these other businesses, especially in the service-based businesses, which we do a lot in that, SaaS as well, we're seeing it through the numbers. We're sending cold traffic to blog posts for charities and for SaaS companies and for service-based businesses. We would never do that years ago. And now we're doing it now and getting lower CPAs, better ROAS, better MER, but we're losing track somewhere in the middle here. So this is a very big problem. And if you're listening trying to figure out how am I going to scale and grow, it's not by doing just more website conversion campaigns. You can get a certain amount of market share that way, but those are the people that, remember, are in market. They're ready to buy. They're just about to buy or considering buying, and you got them at the right time. So this strategy is much broader. Can I step off my soapbox? No, dude, it was great. I think it was really good framing. If you're listening, I have my campaign pulled up. This is one of two YouTube campaigns that we're running. This one is set to spend $3,200 a day, roughly hundred grand a month. We spent 150 total, and that's important context because there's another 50 grand that's working as a supplement to this campaign. It's been running since July. We have jimmied with it. We are running across all networks, which I generally do. You recommend doing this, Alric? I usually talk people out of it, but it's worked okay for us in this particular instance. So, well, the other thing too is with conversion campaigns, you'll notice that you can't actually check that off anymore. No. When did they take that away? Yeah, they, they took that away when they switched over to some of the audience things. They changed a little bit. Well, actually, they, they kind of took that away a little bit further. Uh, they took that away when they switched over to some of the VAC campaigns. Dude, that infuriates me. I know. It's like I know. Theft. It's like forcing you to buy fruit that's bruised at the grocery store. It's like, I want to pick my own apples. That's nuts, man. No, I know. And you have to have that on now. So you have the display network. Now it's for conversion campaigns. So there's ways to do it outside of that. And actually, I have a couple of recommendations for you that are kind of related to that. But what you can do is there's actually a special code and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but there's a number you can put in and I've got it on a YouTube video somewhere. I think it's in the PDF I'll share at the end too. But basically there's a code that you could put into your campaigns where you're excluding a mobile app category and the app category oh, is yeah. all mobile Yvonne did this. Dude, that's a crazy nugget hack. So explain that to the audience because that's freaking brilliant. Yeah, so basically you go into your exclusions and that's where we have a much better. So we have a list. It's legitimately like 20,000 of the top websites and also bad websites we found. And you can just exclude all those from your site. So that's basically going to exclude a lot of the Google Display Network. Not all of it. You'll still get some, but it's going to try and force most of it back to YouTube. So like we're trying to just do a massive exclusion of most of the main possible sites. And then you also do an exclusion of the mobile. So the mobile ones are the one I talked about. So that's basically a mobile app category. But there's this hack where you'd have to select all the individual categories to exclude individually, or there's a little code and it just has a random four digits number. So I don't have it off the top of my head. It's in the PDF. You basically just exclude mobile app category and it's like three, six, seven, eight or something like that. Again, don't quote me on that specific number. And what it does is once you click it, it says all apps. So it's gonna exclude all apps. So now your YouTube ad doesn't show up on apps. You can upload a list of websites to exclude. It would be just so much easier just to 
turn off the checkbox. But anyways, so we do that. And then anytime we find websites that are underperforming, we'll throw them in. And then the other thing that we do too, is we also exclude TV screens, again, for conversions. Like we just know, yes, there's the connected TV, you can pull up the YouTube app or Chrome app or whatever, but it just doesn't convert as well as obviously desktop, mobile, and tablet. In the past, there was some better, like, you know, you could run computer-only campaigns, but, you know, nowadays there's just so much traffic on mobile that you just want to kind of do computer, mobile, tablet. And so you do those few things, that right there can give you a drastic cut. I don't want to just quote necessarily like numbers, but it can definitely shave double digit percentages off of your costs there. Now, in terms of your campaign, you're running to maximize these conversions, but you're running it to the YouTube video. So the problem is my guess is a lot of these conversions are going to show up in the view through conversions. And so that's probably where you'll be able to see them and you can kind of segment them out. That might not be the case too. You can see there you're excluding a couple other things. Well, we also recommend excluding so you see how you can't exclude games from there anymore? It's kind of funny. They're taunting you like, oh, you just can't do it anymore. What you can do is you can just go and exclude a topic and then put games and music videos in there. So they just make you do it more of a roundabout way. Because you can still do those types of topic exclusions. You just can't do the inclusions the other way. But what I would recommend for you here is, again, you're doing this to optimize for conversions but you might be missing out on a benefit that you have of running top of the funnel with getting people to watch the video. What I would almost recommend doing, I'm not saying you change this here because that's like you have those two options. It would be an entirely different campaign type, right? If we were to modify the bid strategy. Which is an in-feed campaign. And what we're finding is the cost per view of those in-feed campaigns. Now you are bidding per view. But right. again, if this is a track of conversions anyways, it's not like it's necessarily like doing all of the stuff you want it to anyways. Sometimes the cost per view can be a magnitude of five or up to 10 times less. You could see, now yeah. again, I don't know what your cost per view is here because it might have started to optimize for that anyways, but you could have a pretty high CPV if you're running direct response off of YouTube. It's not uncommon to see those earlier 15 cent, 20 cent, 10 cent or less, depending if it's really broad market cost per view. And obviously even less if you're in different places outside the US when you're running your ads to a in-feed type ad. So the argument against that, though, is that I'm just getting video viewers and not people with some level of intent. This is content way up front, like just taking a step back. This is pre-engagement content, obviously using specific targeting, some exclusions, which we just talked about, at the very top of the funnel, but not really asking for a conversion. The conversion is to go to the page and watch more videos. But my argument with what you're saying is that if you just go, in essence, I forget what the objective is, is to watch the video, to watch more of the video, you might just get more video watchers, but not people with hidden intent. Like if I see a John Moran video, I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'll hire Solutions 8 someday, so I'll watch his video. You know what I mean? Is there that level? And I, obviously, your CPMs are going to be a hell of a lot lower as soon as you get off any sort of conversion objective. What would be the counter argument to that? Yes. So again, it's one of those things where you're in one of these areas where already what is happening here isn't necessarily what's fully recommended because it's not driving off into the conversion. So you're actually not feeding all that data back to Google in the same way that you would if you were doing a direct response campaign. So you're correct. If it's a direct response campaign, then I would just, again, optimize for those conversion. I wouldn't do it as a view. That said, with in-feed ads, those are a little bit different. So these are not necessarily viewing a ad that appears in front of another ad. This is an ad that's going to appear in search results. So you're scrolling through search results, you're scrolling through your mobile phone, or as a suggested video. And then what you can do 
is you can go in and one of the other benefits with that type of in-feed ad too is that is one of the only areas where you can still do some type of content targeting based on what people are searching there on YouTube. So you can actually put in keywords the old way you used to be able to because again, they don't allow you to do that with conversion action, but you can do it with those types of in-feed ads. You can of course also do audiences. And so you're gonna split test what audiences are gonna perform the best. But I saw there what your cost per view was and I won't really share for everybody here. No, it's fine, it's 53 cents. Cost per view is 53 cents. I have $5,100 conversion value. Yeah, I know you could get that 53 cents to at least half or possibly even less wow. if you're doing it as an in-feed ad. And then again, yes, Ralph, what you're saying is true, but it's already true of what Costum's already doing, right? Which is that it's already running to something that's not necessarily directly optimizing for conversions. And so if that's already the case, then what he could do is create an in-feed ad and set the CPV bid, maybe like half of what that is, like 26 cents or whatever, and watch those views come in at a fraction of the cost, but still coming in to watch that video. But then you set up the targeting the same way that either you could do audiences, but the other benefit of doing in-feed is you could actually do keyword-based targeting because again, they allow you to do that still with CPV campaigns, but they don't allow you to do it with the conversion campaigns. So if you run it that way, you could target all the people looking up lead gen or you know grow business, et cetera, or dial in the marketing, all that stuff. You could do all the same type of audience and layering that you wanna do. You could do top income brackets, all that stuff. Now you're driving people into that video. But here's what you might be missing too, Cosm, is have you taken the bucket of all the people watching that video and then target them with a regular VAC campaign driving them to that final step to submit a lead form. No, or, or that's, so that's a really brilliant point. I'm actually a little ashamed here, but my knee-jerk reaction is to be like, of course we've done that. Seriously? That would be best practice and what an intelligent person would do. No, we haven't done it, but we absolutely should be building a remarketing audience based off of the people that are being driven to those videos. We honestly, I think we just got a little lazy because it was working so well. It was like, man, people love our stuff. Let's go acquire as many of these new viewers as we can. And there's something to be said for making sure we love on the people that are you know, now newly in the circle. Or retarget them to a call to action to your page, at the very least. Like, you're creating massive audiences there, which you haven't retargeted. Like, holy crap. Okay, there's an opportunity there. <laughs> we do have retargeting in place, but it's global retargeting. It's not specific to, like, what our, it's not like the phase two pillar. Yeah, I would look at it like phase two, though. That's not necessarily going to target those people who are watching the YouTube video, though. Just the people that go to your site. So, if you want to target, you can target, you can set up an audience of, all your subscribers, you can set up an audience of all the people that watch that one particular video or all your videos and people that have liked that video or all your videos, people that have added the video to a playlist. So you take even a smaller bucket, the people that have liked that video and that's a really smaller, you know, but targeted group of people. Smart you run targeted. ads to those people, that's gonna be really powerful, but you can also run ads to all the people that have watched that as a video, then run that as a direct response VAC ad that goes off to your main landing page. Some of those are the most powerful campaigns. So here's the thing, we get a client that gets on one of our strategy calls and they say that they have a YouTube channel that has any meaningful amount of viewership or subscribers. And we tell them you're sitting on a gold mine because they are. Because what you could do is you can set up the audience that just captures all the people that are watching the video, all the people that are liking any of your videos, all the people that are subscribed. The thing is you should set up these audiences like now if they're not already set up because they only go back 30 days, but then they can go forward into the future up to 540. So you can preload the audience back 30, but then you can go into the future 540. So everybody who's watching or listening to this, 
you should absolutely, if you're running any type of YouTube ads or you have a YouTube channel, go into Google. There's no downside, but there's only upside in doing this and create an audience for all subscribers, set it to 540. You can do other versions if you want, but let's at least capture the basis of all subscribers up to 540 days. It'll go back 30, it'll go forward 540, that's the maximum. Then do all viewers, same thing. It'll go back 30, it'll go forward 540. Do all people who are liking your videos. There's share, I think they change around a little bit, but like there's playlists and I think there might still be shares. Those we don't do as much because they're usually a lot smaller, but the watch video, liked video and subscribe, those are the big ones that we really focus on. And you set that up now, it'll go back 30 days, but it'll go forward 540 days. Dude, that's a triple gold nugget right there. And like you said, there's no downside. I'm surprised you haven't done it, quite honestly. Yeah. Well, I think we have the audiences. What yeah. pisses me off about myself is we don't use them. You know, to Alric's point, like we sure. have them set up because we've used things that are similar in the past for various reasons. But like, why on earth am I driving all of this traffic and then not segmenting the audiences for remarketing? <sighs> totally. Or just like, I know you're sending them to go to a call to action page, but or just send them back to it like where you want to send them because there's going to be plenty of people that just will watch that initial video on lead gen or whatever it is that, you know, is the most popular one. They won't go to your channel. You know, that two step process ends up in a conversion at some point, but consumption of content is key and using those retargeting audiences that makes the case for a different objective as opposed to conversion objective, even more sounds because all of a sudden your CPMs are going to be that much lower. You're going to be creating even larger audiences because you're just getting people watching videos, maybe some who convert, some who don't. If you set up a campaign like what you've done here, and I think it's relevant to everyone who's listening here because content first is right. absolutely the thing that we are seeing right now that really, really is scaling stuff. Like that's what conversion Mario was campaign, talking about last episode. 100%. Like that's why that yeah. episode was so great. And this is just further clarification of that is like, think about how a buyer buys. They don't buy on their first touch. You have to have multiple touches, especially it's an engagement thing. If you're watching 30 minutes of John Moran going through lead gen, you're pretty engaged. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden you send them to a next video and then maybe a call to action at the end. My question, which we'll get to after this, is why wouldn't you use an offline conversion for a sale with the 90-day conversion window inside of Google to track all that stuff back to a specific video? And we will get into that as well as all the stuff we haven't talked about yet. Omnipresent retargeting, this YouTube ad strategy, AI. Make sure that wherever you're listening, you leave a rating. That always helps us. And we've got some new ratings, actually, Cosm, which we're going to have to get into. Let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. We read all of those as well. And this episode here is actually an outgrowth of that. Very tactical, but still high level. And follow me over on LinkedIn at Ralph Burns and Kasim on Twitter at Kasim Aslam. Go back and listen to previous episodes. And like I said, check out our YouTube channel, which is growing. And there's multiple perpetual traffic channels. So we will leave a link in the show notes. We are in the process of consolidating that. And everything that we mentioned here is over at perpetualtraffic.com. So on behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam, Peace. until next show, see you. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic, 